0: Psychiatrist, aviator, and explorer Bertrand Piccard made history in 1999 by accomplishing the first ever, non-stop, round-the-world balloon flight, and a number of years later, the first round-the-world solar-powered flight. Piccard has dedicated his life to demonstrating sustainable development opportunities. He is founder and chairman of the Solar Impulse Foundation which has assembled a verified portfolio of over 1,400 actionable and profitable climate solutions. As a pioneer of new ways of thinking that reconcile ecology and economy, he uses his exploration feats to motivate governments and industries to take action. He's author of *Réaliste*, Changer d'Altitude, and other books.
1: Bertrand Picard and Solar Impulse Foundation, welcome to the One Planet podcast.
2: I'm very happy to join you. Hello to everyone.
1: I think many people know your achievements as an explorer. Your round the world, hot air balloon journey, your round the world, solar powered flight, born into a family of notable explorers and environmentalists. All of which is described in your book, list, Let's Be Logical, as well as Ecological and other books. What I'd love to discuss is the work of your Solar Impulse Foundation, what you're doing today with governments, industry, and society. In a sense, the Solar Impulse flight and world tour has not ended. It's come down to earth, offering 1,400 profitable solutions to help transform every sector of society.
2: I think you made a beautiful summary. (laughs) What I want to achieve after flying around the world in a solar-powered airplane is to change the narrative of the ecology. For 50 years, we heard that ecology, protection of the environment is something expensive. It's something sacrificial. We have to reduce mobility, reduce comfort, reduce lifestyle, reduce economical growth. And it has created a lot of resistance, a lot of opposition. A lot of people are fighting against ecology because they don't want to lose what they have. So I decided to change that and prove that ecology is something profitable, it creates jobs, it's exciting, it offers new business opportunities inside the protection of the environment, and it is something that should bring everybody together. And to prove it, to prove that protection of the environment is profitable, I launched with the Solar Impulse Foundation the challenge of selecting, identifying, assessing, and labeling more than 1,000 solutions in the world, everywhere in the world. That would be economically profitable, that would create jobs, that would be an advantage for the consumers also, and that would protect the environment in the field of energy, water, construction, agriculture, mobility, yes. circular economy, waste management, and, and so on. And it's wonderful to see that we, we did much better than the goal because we have identified not only 1,000, but today 1,404.
1: And truly, each one, you identify it with your team of experts and the criteria, I guess, which we'll go into later is that they can achieve critical mass. But first, as you say, that we have to change the legal framework and you have narrowed down, I guess, in France that you're bringing to the Assemblée Nationale, 50 French-based solutions. Tell us a little bit more about that and what we can realistically expect in terms of regulations change.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, once we have passed the bar of 1,000 solutions available today, profitable today, protecting the environments today, I thought everybody's going to use them. Fantastic. We we have finished our, our job and not, not because of course, a lot of people don't know about these solutions, but also because the legal framework is an obstacle for these solutions. You know, today the legal framework still allows. To pollute legally, to put as much CO2 as you want in the atmosphere, as much plastic in the oceans, it's not forbidden. So you have so many corporations who are accused of being polluters, and they say, we are legal. We respect the norms. We respect the standards. And this has to change. Now we have to bring the legal framework to such a modernization that it can match with the modernized solutions that, that we have and not just prohibiting some behaviors or things like that, but allowing these solutions to really make it to the market because the public procurements are usually taking the cheapest thing on the beginning, although it will be much more expensive over 10 years. That's an example. Another thing, public procurement is reserving a very, very small place for innovative solutions. They want to take only well-known and standard solutions. So we are asking to enlarge the part that is reserved for innovative solutions, for example, And, and things like that. It's just a way to bring the legal framework to allow and to pull to the market all these solutions that could make such a difference and which today are unfortunately remaining in the startups instead of going to the markets.
1: Right. And what is then the structure for, I believe you have funds that will help subsidize or in terms of taking funds that were maybe currently subsidizing the fossil fuel industry to support more innovative solutions and on the individual level, how can those who would like to make that transition in their lives subsidize it? So
2: we don't need subsidies for these solutions because they're already profitable. They need upfront investments. Which is not the same thing, because usually you need to invest in these solutions and because they're efficient, they will allow you to save natural resources, to save a lot of products, to save energy. So over the years, they allow to save money and this money that you save, this margin of profit that is bigger, will go to fund the upfront investments. So of course you need someone to pay at the beginning, but it's not a subsidy, it's an investment. So you have some green funds, you have private investors. Sometimes it's the public procurement. If they do it well, who can go for that? Sometimes it's leasing process. You know, you have now some systems that I really find interesting. If you have a little house, you don't have the money to change your heating system. What do you do? You rent a new system with heat pump. So they put the geothermy, they put the heat pump, but you don't pay for it. You just pay for the energy or for the heating over 10 or 20 years. And over 10 and 20 years, each month, it will be cheaper than your old heating system that is polluting and wasting energy. So it's a win for you. It's a win for the environment. And it's a win also for the company who is providing it creating jobs and bringing these heat pumps on the markets. And this is the type of processes that we want to support. Now, of course, these solutions, they also need uh, some investments to to develop. The startups, they need investors, series A, B, C, and so on. And we have created two investment funds together with BNP Paribas and with the Rothschild Five Arrows. And one is for early stage venture capital. The other one is for growth and buyouts, so later stage, and it is reserved for investment into the solutions that we have labeled. So these solutions can get some investors and grow and develop their products that are good for the economy and for the ecology.
1: And you spoke about waste, because a lot of when people think about the transition, they think, oh, well, overnight, we're not going to get all electric cars. Overnight, we're not going to do this. But in fact, by addressing the waste, which I understand the energy sector, it's three quarters of our energy is wasted.
2: Yes, people don't realize that. But if you look at the energy that is produced, where does it go? It is transported and you have a lot of losses. Then it goes into systems, energy systems that have a lot of losses. And at the end, three-quarter is lost. Just, just take the thermal engine of your car. The maximum return that you can have is about 25 27%. When the engine is warm, constant RPM. If you accelerate, it's even worse. It means that when you pay €2.20 for the fuel in your tank, three-quarter of it is lost by friction, heat, and so on. It's horrible. For the food, it's about half of it that is lost between production and consumption. The waste, it's 95% that is wasted because people don't understand it. It's a resource. So each time you are more efficient because you have a new system that allows you sometimes just with common sense and that's high tech, that allows you to save energy or natural resources, you would be more profitable and more ecological.
1: And what's also so nice about this, and also we'll go into your book as well, is it's realist, is you're really speaking in the realistic language that the governments and industry think in wealth creation, job creation, instead of some people feeling they can just speak their way out of the problem.
2: Yes, we want to be realistic. What does it mean to be realistic? It means that we try to obtain a result independently from our own ideology. Because you can have an ideology of left or right or ecology or industry or finance. You need to find a common intersection between all of them. What can serve at the same time the protection of the environment for the ecologist, the solidarity with the poorest people for the left wing, the safety of the energy supply for the right wing, the development of the economy and job creation for the center right. all this is possible with the solutions that we identify. So we don't need to have a fight between the different parts of society. No, we find a common interest that is independent from our ideology and we can get the results. This is the way we want to work. We want to federate and not to split Uh people apart.
1: And so in terms of when those regulations are really adopted to not be archaic and built on archaic technologies, how will we demonstrate? I believe in China, they have appointed 1,000 environmental judges and also prosecutors. How will we show that we are serious about this and it's not just a commitment that we're not following through on?
2: I think one way to show our commitments as a country is to modernize the norms and the standards. Today, you are allowed with your car thermal engine car to produce a certain amount of toxical particles, but we have identified a system that divides by two, the emission of these toxical particles, and at the same time, 20% less fuel consumption. So your fuel saving pays for the system. It means that in every city or every country of the world, we need to divide by two the tolerance. For toxic particles, because the technology allows now to be twice better. But as long as you maintain 100% allowance, nobody will use the system.
1: Is this the anti-smog box?
2: Yeah, it's anti-smog. And they, they have two companies producing that. The other one is Logico. And you have two of them. And we include that in the recommendations for the legal framework. Because today, if you have one of these systems, you are considered to be a normal thermal engine. Although you pollute half only, and the, what we ask is that the vignette criteria. So the allowance of the car will allow you to go during the peak of consumptions. When you have only electric cars allowed or hybrid cars allowed, the system with logical or anti-smug would be allowed also. With this allowance, it would really be an incentive for people to buy the system and put it on their car. And during the entire year, they will pollute only half of what they used to do.
1: And just to go into some of those 50 propositions that you put through the Assembly Nationale, which is really exciting also for individuals just to find out how they can be a part of it and maybe yes. put pressure on their electors. Just tell us some of those and, and how you chose to represent the different solutions in the, the different sectors of society.
2: Well, we had to make a choice and start by 50 because even if there are 200 that are good, we cannot make 200 recommendations at once. Then parliamentarians would would say, well, well, how should we start? So we took 50 of them that have a high leverage, easy to understand, and we have a lawyer cabinet who has prepared a proposition of regulation for each one. For example, there is a system of public lighting that is autonomous with LED lamp, small battery and solar cells. Can you imagine that if you would have this in a city? the city would save up to 37% of its energy costs. But today, the allowance for innovative solutions is very small in the public procurement. So they would be allowed maybe to buy only 5% or 3% of the total public lighting that would be autonomous like this. And what we ask, and the text is like this, because it is possible to have autonomous public lighting, because it would save up to 37% of the energy cost of the city. We ask that the ceiling for innovative solutions goes higher. So we have more of these innovative solutions in the public procurement, as long as they protect the environment. And this is one recommendation that, that we are asking. Another one, it's a system, also a French system that catches the heat from the chimney of the factory and gives it back to the factory. Huge energy saving and much less money also paid each month. And uh, because it's possible, there should be a real incentive for that. So it means that the legal framework should really emphasize that all the factories should be equipped by a system like that. This brand or another brand, we're not pushing a brand, we're pushing a system. Because it is existing, it is possible, it is ecological, it is profitable. So we can really push it in the law. So these are the type of things that we are trying to to achieve.
1: And I read through the book and they're so exciting and I would recommend anyone go to the site and if, I know you're focusing now on France, but I know you work, of course, with other EU member states and beyond and the UN. Would you, once this rolls out or get progress in France, have similar local solutions for different parts of the world.
2: Yes, absolutely. I tell you why we started in France, even if I'm a Swiss citizen. It's because in France, several companies offered me public publicity for this campaign everywhere in France, in the metro station, in the train stations, in the supermarkets, in the streets. And there is an agency, Publicis, who built the campaign for us with the big themes like when climate changes, the laws must also change and things like that. So we had all this big support in France and we decided to do it in France. Now, of course, if there are other people who would like to support such a campaign in other countries, we would be more than happy to organize it.
1: Yes. And another way, sometimes it's difficult, as you know, to get a whole country to come on board, but we're saying that cities are leading the way. I know you have uh, Cities of the Future podcast. You have a solution for Cities Guide, and we're living in the center of the city. So as you know, cities are the main drivers of creativity and innovation and consume 75% of the world's natural resources. So just tell us a little bit more about the Cities Guide and the kind of rapid adaptations and transformations that can take place.
2: Yes. The Guide for the Cities, it's a selection of solutions that we have prepared for the specific needs of the cities, which are construction, which is the way to make buildings uh, carbon neutral, much more efficient, new heating systems, its mobility, of course, it's uh, the supply, it's the waste management. So of course there is less solutions about agriculture or, or industry if it is for the cities. So we really focus on the city And we would like to make an alliance of all the cities who would like to be interested into these solutions and start to use these solutions and test them everywhere. So that's one of the actions we're doing now.
1: Yes, one of many. And how can those who are living in countries that might be just seeing results in America with the Supreme Court being resistance, almost sabotaging some transitions that could take place, but how can citizens in those countries help influence their governments by putting forth some of these solutions.
2: United States is a typical example of a fight between the ecologist and the economist. And we have to show that it was maybe something that could be done in the past when ecology was too expensive. But today it's an old fight. It's a useless fight because today you are more profitable if you're efficient and ecological because you save natural resources, you save energy and you make more money. and you seize new business opportunity that you can grab. So there is no way to promote only ecology. And if you promote only ecology, you will have people against you, like the Supreme Court in the US. So we really have to link all the time the profitability and the ecology, and this will decrease the resistance. And who can better say that? than the industries, the big chiefs of industry, the CEOs, chairman of industry, of economy, they are, they are the ones who should push for this vision of the protection of the environment because it is beneficial for them. And when the industry, the economy, the investors have understood that the Supreme court will not need to fight against ecology anymore.
1: And some industries, some companies are actively, you know, putting a carbon ceiling on their activities. But of course, the legislation is great to spur that on. What do you feel about the responsibility of the individual and how can they get involved in this?
2: The individuals can do a lot. They can use the social media. They can speak to some journalists. They can speak to some local politicians, but they can also do their own parts instead of just demonstrating in the street, which is useful. They can do their own part. That means see everywhere how to reduce the negative impact on the environment. It's clear that you don't need to eat meat twice a day, every day. You should reduce meat consumption. You should reduce what you buy at the other side of the world. You have to consume more local more seasonal, it's better to heat or cool your house in a reasonable way. What happens today in a lot of countries in summer, they cool down with air conditioning at 15 degrees Celsius. And in winter, they heat up to 25 degrees Celsius. They just invert the season. It's completely mad. And each time it's a huge loss of energy and a huge loss of money. Now you need to drive with cars, if not electric or hybrid, at least with a smaller engine. You don't need a car that can drive 300 kilometers per hour when the speed limit is 120 or 130. So the people can be more reasonable. And I think every citizen can reduce his CO2 footprint at least by 20 or 30% without making a sacrifice just by being clever. And then you can do more, you can invest in your house, you can renovate your apartment, you can change the heating system. But it's true that if you are renting a small flat, you don't have so much influence on the owner of the house who is renting you the house. So there are some limits as an individual, but already you can do a lot.
1: Yes. And I also like this philosophy that even though you're getting into more realistic language when you're talking to the decision makers, but you have a philosophical spiritual dimension, but what it, it is that every problem is actually a solution to another problem.
2: Yes, because I think when we have a problem, there is something to learn. So either you say, oh, I had this problem. It's not fair. I don't want that. It's not my fault. And you start to refuse the problem, but the problem doesn't disappear and you suffer much more. Or you say, there is a problem. It means we have to change the way we're doing things. So what should we change? How can we be more clever? How can we use new solutions, new behaviors, new ways to do, new decisions? And then the problem becomes useful because we learn a better way to do
1: I like this one solution that you'd mentioned was that the data centers, which emit, of course, uh, CO2, we send them to cold countries to cool them down, but we could bring them back to cities and solve part of the heating needs.
2: Yes, exactly. In the beginning, the data centers were cooled down by air conditioning. That was absolutely ridiculous because it was expensive and polluted. Then they put them in cold countries thinking we don't need to cool them down. Okay, but it's half of the solution only. Because you are losing the heat. You produce heat with the data center and you lose it in the atmosphere. So this heat should be used to heat the city, to make the sanitation water for the people living in the city. All this heat is useful. You can make district heating for all the houses of the city. So really, we have to bring back the data centers where we need heating of water or apartments.
1: And so I think it's in chapter 11 of Realist, you discuss capitalism, the future of capitalism. And if you were to interrogate our system of also of globalization, you write, in an ideal world, market mechanisms would harmoniously regulate production and consumption. We would only produce what is necessary and we would only consume what is healthy. This world was imagined and supported by thinkers of economic liberalism, but one must be naive or dishonest to claim that it exists. So how can we evolve our capitalist and globalist models?
2: We should be realistic in the sense that we're not going to change human nature just by asking people to be nicer, more compassionate, and think more about the others and think more about the future and the next generations. There are a lot of times where the. Behavior of the people is so stupid, so erratic, so dangerous that you need a regulation to put a frame around the human behavior. And this is not only for environment. There is a legal framework that controls the behavior of people in mobility. You have speed limits. You can do whatever you want. You need to drive on one side of the road and not the other one. You have rules between neighbors. You have rules for hygiene for health, education, taxes, security, all this, you have rules. And we are very, very late in the rules for environment. for a very clear reason. It's that the protection of the environment until now was too expensive. And nobody wanted to take the risk of making rules that would damage the economy. Maybe you remember this famous sentence of the President Bush in the US who said, I would never allow ecology, to arm the economic development of the U.S. So now this sentence would not be relevant anymore because protection of the environment has become profitable. It is now finally possible for the governments to put in place regulations that are modern, that match with the modernity of the technologies and modify all of these erratic behavior that we have now, today, making pollution, climate change and destruction of quality of life, destruction of natural resources, uh, forest uh, and biodiversity in general.
1: And your beginnings, because we only mentioned your family's wonderful history, your beginnings as an explorer and an environmentalist, stewardship and concern for the planet has been part of your family for a number of generations, long before many of us recognized the urgency. So just please tell our listeners about that history and your approach to the purpose of exploration.
2: Yes. It's true that since my grandfather, there was this spirit of exploration in the family, this way of being not satisfied, not happy with what we see and willing to make it better. So take 1931, when my grandfather made the first flight ever in the stratosphere. It was a time where airplanes were flying at low level, unpressurized, limited by the weather. And my grandfather showed that it was possible to fly much higher. He went 16 kilometers high. He invented the pressurized cabin. He was by the way, the first man to see the curvature of the earth with his own eyes, but he proved that it was possible to fly in thinner air above bad weather, more efficient, less fuel consumption because less resistance from the atmosphere. So his main concern was already to be energy efficient. And uh, he wrote an article about solar energy and heat pumps. In the year 1942, he wrote about the biodiversity in the Alps and things like that. And then when my father took his Batiscave, his deep sea submarine, as the first man to the deepest spot on earth in the Maria Trench, the goal was also ecological. He wanted to see if there was life in the bottom of the oceans, in the deepest trenches where the governments wanted to drop the radioactive and toxical waste. And when he discovered the fish, and a couple of shrimps, it was the proof that there was oxygen coming from the surface to the deepest depth, feeding fishes and shrimps, but also circulating the water. So if you throw radioactive waste in the bottom of the oceans, you would pull with the entire oceans because of these currents that my father discovered. And uh, that was a big milestone for the protection of the environment, protection of the oceans. So I was educated into this spirit of exploration where scientific exploration needs to serve quality of life on Earth. And I was always in that topic. And uh, my father then built several other submarines, exploring the Gulf Stream, exploring different uh, lakes in Europe, preserving the quality of water and things like that. So it was normal that I would also go into that direction. So I admit that the flight around the world nonstop in the balloon, that was more my personal dream. You know, it was like, like my exam to be a big explorer, if I can say it like this. But Solar Impulse, that was clearly a useful and ecological project to prove that clean technologies and renewable energies can achieve impossible goals, like flying day and night in an airplane.
0: Transformative change and sustainable futures, mitigating climate change, reducing fossil fuel emissions. These are all terms we hear every day. But what do these futures and possibilities actually look like? Picard answers these questions and proposes tangible solutions with his nonprofit, the Solar Impulse Foundation. It is so refreshing to see the materialization of these better futures that we discuss every day. With solutions that range from efficient watering systems for house plants to technologies that allow the infinite recycling of plastics. Inertia is a word we know all too well in the climate sphere, whether there is a lack of will to fight against climate change or a lack of knowledge on how to do it. But the latter cannot be an excuse with people like Picard around, especially with the 50 solutions for the legal framework. It is shocking to hear that the legal framework allows people and corporations to continue to damage the planet we live on with no repercussions. That is why it is so invigorating to see how Picard approaches the problem. One would be tempted to ask, we have these solutions, now how do we implement them? And he has the answer for that too. It feels like Picard is addressing every frustration that we may have towards how little is being done towards climate change, and leveraging his life experiences, knowledge, and resources to address the problems. The holistic approach Picard takes to involving every level of society. Businesses, individuals, and governments really gives me hope, as it shows that society can work together to get out of this crisis that faces all of us. Picard spoke on how sustainability should be about creating a better quality of life rather than paring down on our habits. A new way of growth, both materially and spiritually. The type of growth that does not kid itself into thinking that we live on a planet with infinite resources. Instead, a growth and change that allows for us to live our lives comfortably within our means. A growth mindset that is still profitable. Profitability is one of the biggest talking points in the sustainability realm. There is this idea that sustainability is inextricably linked with expenses and the privilege that comes with being able to make those expenses. But that does not have to be true anymore with these 1,400 solutions. All sectors of society can see that sustainability is the path to take, both ecologically and economically. Picard's own history and family history of exploration is particularly fascinating in that it speaks to how our planet is changing. Coming from a family that has actually explored from the top of the world to the very depths of it, after his solar flight, Picard decided to dedicate his life to making sure that the beauty of this planet that has inspired his family for dedicated generations is preserved for future generations and the people living on this planet today. It shows that in today's day and age, the love we have towards nature cannot exist without the passion to save it. And this love lives within all of us. What I really like about Picard's approach is that he sees us all coming together to save our planet there is a role for every sector of society to play. We don't have to leave anyone behind, but together, implement and imagine the future in concrete ways, and together, collectively create a system, for example, with the framework proposed by Picard, to live in a sustainable and ecological world. Now, let's get back to the podcast.
1: Yes, you really became a worldwide symbol for a fossil-free future. And although it is your own personal and spiritual development and goal, it just gave so much credibility to your projects. And also even your grandfather and your father, they were talking about overconsumption and overpopulation really before anyone recognized this.
2: Yeah, it's true that my father opened the first ecological European institute in 1972. And his goal was to train representatives from the political world about ecology. But it was too early. Uh, nobody came. Can you imagine? There is the mayor of a city who told him, uh, told my father, uh, I have no pollution in my city because there is some wind and it always takes the, uh, the smoke uh, or the smog in another place. So that was the understanding of ecology uh, in those times and that it's true that there was no technical solutions. Everything was too expensive. And the big topics then in the discussions that was about degrowth and overpopulation. But once you say that there are too many people on earth consuming and making pollution, what do you do? You cannot just decrease the number by yourself. So it was a frustrating time, I think, for the ecologist to observe the problem and to be unable to change it. And today it's the opposite. I wish my father was still alive now to, to see all the solutions that we can offer to the people to reduce their impact, negative impact, to reduce the waste, to reduce the consumption. And to motivate them to do better in harmony with the environment and their own needs for their own life.
1: And you think that among those regulations and laws that you're proposing that we might need to have legislation against population growth or these other proposals take care of that naturally?
2: You know, it's interesting to see that overpopulation comes mostly in poor regions because when you are really poor, you have no education, you have no money, you need a lot of children to take care of the family. And you also absolutely don't know how to avoid to have too many children. And there is a very clear observation that if you fight against poverty and you educate the people, especially the women in the poorest countries, there's an automatic reduction in the number of children because they will have their own job, they will have their own life, the responsibility over themselves. So they, they will not have eight or nine children. They will have two, three or four, half of it. So you have an automatic balance of the population if you increase the quality of life and the level of life.
1: And I do want to touch on, of course, on your background in psychiatry and hypnosis and how you trained yourself for the solar impulse flight. How do you feel that the techniques of psychiatry and hypnosis stimulate creativity and help you boost performance?
2: Because with hypnosis, you get in relation with yourself. And this is something, if you notice, that we, we don't learn so much. In our world, we learn to get in relation with others in the best case. <laughs> We're always projected outside of us. We are in the social media. We are in the future. What's going to happen? We are in the anxiety of all the problems, but everything we hear, we see, we touch, we smell, everything is outside of us. So how can we use our resources? How can we use our skills? It's difficult because we're not taught to do it. And hypnosis is a way to turn the, the attention outside of the, the outer world to create inside of us. And when we do that, when we start to be aware of ourselves, aware of our emotions, aware of our potential, our skills, our qualities, our emotions, and so on, then we have so many more tools. We can do so much more. And this is the magic of hypnosis. But can you imagine that when I was trained as a medical doctor uh, 40 years ago, hypnosis was considered to be a wrong therapy. It was banned. The real doctors said hypnosis is only for witches. (laughs) And now it's finally recognized as a way to not only have more creativity, but also to, to heal ourselves to have the potential to solve problems within ourselves by being more aware, having the right energy, the right attitude, the right behavior, and, and so on.
1: I think definitely, and it also helps us tune into others And with all the distraction through, as you say, social media or technology. We need to bring things down to a natural level.
2: Yeah, absolutely. To the level, I would say the, the level of awareness that we are alive with our mind and our body on the way for evolution. If we have this vision of life, then we find a meaning. But if everything is just the quest for temporary happiness, we are running after happiness all the time. We try to find it outside of us and it's difficult to find it outside of us. And then we have depression, we have anxiety because we don't find what we want in life. But if we look at constantly outside of ourselves, instead of inside of ourselves, it's normal to have people who are anxious, depressed, afraid, the bad mood, the loss of meaning in their life.
0: Yes, definitely. So speaking of being in tune with ourselves and how we can be in tune with the world, What can you tell us about how the government level, the business level, and the individual level can come together and be in tune with each other, and whether you think one of these groups is more important than the others in implementing these solutions?
2: I believe that what is important is that we focus on the part that is of common interest for all the parties. You have a lot of solutions that protect the environment, but not all are profitable. You have a lot of solutions to make a lot of money, but not all of them protect the environment. So you need to take the intersection of the two. What is protecting the environment? What is supporting the economy and the industry and job creation? And you have an intersection of the two and you focus on that. Because if you focus on that, you can put everybody on your side and the politicians will agree to push this. Because it creates jobs, which is good for their reelection. It makes profit for the industry, which is good for the country. And it makes redistribution of money through the taxes. It's good for the poor people. So the left wing can be happy and it protects the environment. So the ecologists, and the environmentalists, can be happy. And I think we should really focus on the common interest instead of what brings people apart. Today, we focus on what brings people about. So they just fight together. And what you see in America is a good example of it. People not speaking the same language and fighting against each other. And on one side, you have the Supreme Court. On the other side, you have the environmental agency and you have the result because everybody's fighting instead of finding the common interest.
1: So on these tools of bringing people together, you have the solar impulse label, you have the global alliance of companies, you have a climate tech toolkit. Can you just explain how this criteria and selection process and how you achieve critical mass through these solutions?
2: Yes. All the holders of solutions, all the innovators can be in a startup or a big company can submit the solution to us. And the solution will be analyzed by our group of experts. We have external and independent experts, have about 370 of them, and they will observe three criteria. Is it a solution that exists today and is credible today? Because we don't want to have vague ideas for the future. We want to have solutions for today. Then it needs to be economically profitable for the company who produces it. And for the consumer, the people buying the solution must save money. Otherwise it's not profitable and it needs to protect the environment either because it's much better than anything else existing today, or because it's clearly a new business opportunity to protect the environment. If you have these criteria that are all three positive, then the experts will give a recommendation that we give the label and then they will receive the label. Maybe I have to specify that the Solar Impulse Efficient Solution label is currently the first and only label in the world that certifies the profitability of an environmental-friendly product.
1: Yes, that's what we loved. It's been vetted and you have these experts that are involved in the vetting process. Tell us how the Global Alliance works because that's 4,000 companies or over.
2: Yeah, exactly. The World Alliance for Efficient Solutions. It's made out of companies who have solutions, or companies who are looking for solutions, or public services, or institutions. And they come together because they have this goal of promoting efficient solutions in the world. And having 4,000 members, which are all official institutions or companies, it's a lot already. 4,000 companies and institutions who are actively working with efficient solutions. And we try, of course, to make this world alliance as big as possible.
1: And when you're working with governments, the point of entry was good for you for France, but what are some of the questions or the way that you adapt to working with different governments and what their needs are and their willingness to make the transition?
2: Yeah, it depends a little bit on the opportunities that we have. For example, I met Nicola Sturgeon, the prime minister of Scotland, at the COP in uh, Katowice, COP 24. And we discussed about the partnership and we brought to Scotland at COP26. We brought the selection of solutions for Scotland. It's a book with 254, I believe, solutions specific for Scotland. We are preparing that for other countries. We're offering our service because it's for free to other countries. And for example, at the COP27 in Charles next November, there will be a dedication of solutions for developing countries, mainly for Africa. So we will focus on the solutions that we identified, but that are really important for developing countries. And we work also with some regions, regions of France, uh, région Grand Est or Île de France or Pyrénées Atlantique. And we also bring solutions there that can be tested by the public uh, authorities.
1: I was interested in something else that you put forward. And I thought, wow, you said that aviation, which is, of course, a field you know so very well, could go carbon neutral tomorrow. Tell us how that might be possible.
2: It can be carbon neutral tomorrow or even today if there is a clear decision of the airlines to include in the price of every ticket the carbon offset of the passengers. And it is unacceptable that it is not yet already happening because when you fly in an airplane, you put CO2 in the atmosphere and you don't care. You just leave it there and it's not included in the price of your ticket. So there is no way to reabsorb this CO2. So there is one lane, of course, of technological development to have cleaner airplanes. And this is, I would say, the task of the constructors. And when you see what Airbus is doing, it's outstanding. They have the Airbus NEO that consumes 25% less kerosene. Uh, You have now some software that update the flight in order to save kerosene and things like that. Okay, that's good. There will be carbon neutral airplanes maybe in 2035, hydrogen or biofuels. Okay. But meanwhile, the airlines have to do their job. And the the job is to offset the CO2 that they produce. And this has to be done. But of course, in this case, I think the pressure of what they call the fleek scam, the shame to fly, it's a good pressure because this will maybe push the airlines to understand that if they don't take CO2 into consideration, they will go into serious trouble.
1: And speaking about hydrogen, you know, Europe, of course, is at the forefront of this. Tell us uh, what it looks like on the ground and where we're going towards rolling out more dependence on hydrogen.
2: Hydrogen. Is a gas that you have to produce artificially because you have hydrogen everywhere, but it's always linked to other molecules or atoms. So, the, the one way to do is to hydrolyze the water. So, you put electricity through the water to obtain oxygen and hydrogen. And then you use the hydrogen either directly or you use it in a fuel cell. That means a type of system that brings the hydrogen to reproduce water and electricity. And like this, you can feed the electric engine of your car or your truck, for example, but you can also use hydrogen to make the heat when you burn it for the steel factory. Steel is something that is produced a lot in our world. We need a lot of steel and it's a very polluting industry. And now they use coal. So if you replace the coal by clean and green hydrogen, you can have carbon neutral steel or almost carbon neutral steel. You can use the hydrogen for fertilizers. So you see that hydrogen is a product that is interesting for the industry, interesting for mobility. It's interesting for the energetical independence of countries, but it's also good for the industry like the oil industry, because the oil industry has to find new domains of expertise. If they reduce oil and gas and coal, they need something else. And hydrogen is one of the things that can make the oil companies happy.
0: To get back to your solutions and the selection process, you spoke about the profitability of the solutions and how they're selected. What can you tell us as consumers about how to make sure we're not being Tricked into greenwashing and how your company specifically vets the solution so that there's no greenwashing.
2: You are right to ask that. Greenwashing is when you pretend that you protect the environment where actually you don't do it. And sometimes it's even the opposite. So you need experts who will analyze the solutions to be sure that it is clearly something that protects the environment. And all our experts are completely independent, they don't know the owner of the solution that they have to assess so they can be completely neutral. And there are solutions that we refuse. We refuse because they give a false impression of being green and clean, but on the other side, they they produce more pollution, so we don't accept them. And about greenwashing, you know, there are investment funds that are being accused of greenwashing, some big companies, but we have to really see what we're speaking about. If you have an oil company who wants to be cleaner, they have to open a department for electricity, for renewable energies or hydrogen or biogas and things like that. But they have to fund all this investment, all this development. And they fund it with the business that they are doing in oil. So they cannot cut oil immediately. They will reduce oil at the same time, and they increase the rest. So it's not greenwashing if they continue to produce oil. What would be greenwashing would be to say, we're interested in renewable energies, if they don't do it, then it would be greenwashing. But if, if it's really a trend that they are doing, I think we have to encourage that.
1: You know, the cross-national complexity of the EU is vast. How do you bring them to the table around some of these solutions as you're individually working with particular countries so that they may agree upon some of these norms?
2: You speak uh, with the European Commission?
1: Yes, I spoke with Paul Pino at the start of the Ukraine crisis and discussing some of these images.
2: Yeah, I'm a special advisor to the European Commission, and I'm part of the group of reflections for the foresight of Europe. And all these solutions, all this way of thinking is, of course, something I bring in these meetings, what I bring in these discussions. But myself, I cannot make all the decisions for Europe or the taxonomy of Europe or the legal framework of Europe. I'm just one person amongst others who try to influence in the good direction. But then you have also people who don't want to change anything. You have different interests. So of course, in the political decisions, it doesn't go as fast as you want. Because you have other people who think the opposite and they also have an influence.
1: Yes. And we've been speaking up so much about solutions because it gives us that real tangible reason for hope. But d- d- could you share with us, as you think about the future, you know, your memories of the beauty and wonder of the natural world that you strive to protect. You have had amazing experiences. I could speak f-
2: about it forever and tell you all the beautiful things I've seen, but it would be useless. Because people are not going to protect the environment because the environment is beautiful. People are going to protect the environment if it is profitable to do it. It's terrible what I'm saying, but it's the truth. It's what people think. If you have the industry, the economy producing goods for the entire world and all the people who consume it, they are not going to stop because it's beautiful to see a lake in the mountain or birds on the river, or nice fishes jumping on the sea or in the lake. They're going to do it if it's profitable. So, of course, I'm an explorer. I love the beauty of the world. I've seen fantastic things like the delta of the Ganges River in the Gulf of Bengali during a moonlight. I've seen the deserts with the dunes, with the rocks, of the sunrise, with my solar-powered airplane. I've flown above oceans where there were whales jumping in the water and the big bunches of dolphins when I was flying with solar impulse. It's beautiful, but it's not enough to motivate people. You know, at the end of a speech, if I speak about that for an hour, people would applaud standing ovation, great. And what? They go back home? Are they going to change their habits? If it's a CEO of a company, is he he going to be more energy efficient? No, I don't think so. So this is why I prefer to speak with a really down to earth language. So maybe the people who love nature are going to say, oh, Bertropicard now is too much down to earth. He's speaking about profitable solutions. He's speaking to the industry who is polluting, but we have to speak to the industry who is polluting and bring them profitable solutions. Otherwise the world will never change or humankind will never change. And don't forget one thing, what we are damaging is not the beauty of nature. What is damaging is, is the quality of life of human beings on earth, because we can still, we can still have beautiful things to see, but if we have a climate change, if we have tropical disease in Europe, if we have heat waves, floods, droughts, millions of climate refugees. Life will be miserable, even if nature is still beautiful.
1: Nature will survive. And you know, also, as you think about future and the teachers and life lessons that have been important for you, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember?
2: I would like young people to know that there are more solutions than problems. Because today there is this echo anxiety. You have a lot of young people who are depressed. Because they see all the problems and they don't see the solutions. They need to act to get out of the anxiety. They need to know their solutions. They need to know we can do something. And each one at his level has to do what he can. That, that, that's important. And I also would like to tell you how much inspired I was in my childhood by all the big explorers that I met. Astronauts of the early American space program, pioneers in aviation, pioneers in environment, in underwater exploration and things like that. And all these people showed me that it is wonderful to embrace the unknown, to do things that nobody thinks is possible, to try things for the first time, to invent, to create, to call our certitudes into question, to challenge our knowledge and try to know more and better and differently. All this, I believe, is really important in life. Always try to improve what we see and what we have. This is the meaning of exploration. Not only exploration of new territories, but exploration of better ways to think and better ways to do.
1: I should say it's also the meaning of life if we really accept that challenge. What are we doing with our lives? And you have given a great example in yours. And so to thank you, Bertrand Pika and Solar Impulse Foundation for helping spur political change to move us from inertia to action by presenting realistic and economically sound solutions that preserve our quality of life, planetary health, and create a better future for all. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet podcast.
2: Thank you very much for the invitation. I was... Very, very happy to share this experience with you. And thank you for the great spirit of your podcast.
0: One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michelski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Eveline Moll with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Eveline Moll. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at, at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.